Hello, my friends. Welcome back to What's Next. I'm your host, Dr. Paige Perkey. Before I introduce today's guest and topic, I have three brief announcements. First, unlike prior episodes, I will not end this episode with my personal reflections given the length of the present episode. I will, however, save my thoughts and reflections for another episode. Knowing that, I hope you choose to tune in this Thursday and beginning next Tuesday for more content from What's Next. Second, if you'd like to support What's Next or join efforts, please email me. Also, if you'd like my notes, which provides an outline and summary of today's topic and guest speaker, please email whatsnextofficial2020 at gmail.com. Third, and lastly, for those who are new to the podcast, to What's Next, this podcast aims to provide a foundation upon which to create a team a family of problem solvers aimed at co-creating innovative solutions, sustainable solutions, for the social, economic, and political problems facing our world. We are currently in the first series, wherein we focus on providing the listener with educational information to support them, to support you in your mind, body, spirit, health your self-analysis journey, as we believe this is critical to building that previously mentioned team, that problem-solving team. My rationale for this will make more sense as this episode unfolds. Which brings me to the main event. So in today's episode, I had the truly the honor and privilege and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Michael Conforti on the topic of dream analysis. Dr. Conforti is a Jungian dream analyst who is also the founder and director of the Assisi Institution. Be sure to check them out at assisiinstitute.com. He's also or has served in the past as a senior associate faculty member in the PhD and master's program in clinical psychology. He's an international speaker, systems theorist, author. I mean, truly, his resume is as intriguing, thoughtful, and impressive as his dialogue is in this episode. And with all that being said, it is with so much gratitude and excitement that I now segue us to the episode with Dr. Michael Conforti on Jungian Dream Analysis. Please enjoy. Well, first of all, thank you again so much for agreeing to be on What's Next. I think that your unique skill set will be highly valuable for not only myself, (laughs) but also for our listeners. So thank you again. My pleasure. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So your work is on dream analysis. Can you describe dream analysis, your work, et cetera, just the lay of the land? Okay. Give a little, sir. I've been a, an analyst for 40 years almost and in private practice. And from private practice for me, first 20, 25 years, seeing patients here in the States. And slowly but surely, it began, what developed was an international career where I now teach in Italy, Russia, Australia, Latin America. And so it's, it's just, it's wonderful to see the development of this work and to see people that you care about what you've developed. 
-hmm. So what it is I work with is I work with patterns. You know, as a, a Jungian psychoanalyst, you deal with universal patterns, universal par patterns of, say, what happened when you're a child. What are, what are the normal patterns, general patterns? What happens when you begin getting older in life, when you begin in your 20s and 30s, you do college, there are general patterns. What happens when you get older? In my life, I'm looking at 73 years from now. There are patterns that come. My father, going 104 years old, still lives alone, right? nuts right yeah. and there's patterns so it's not i mean people don't sometimes they get afraid of the word pattern because you think it's about having to conform to something it's not about that and where Jungian psychology comes in which is what i've been doing all these years it looks at what is what's sort of the blueprint of humanity there are certain tendencies everybody shares animals have migratory patterns we have migratory patterns we have periodic changes we go through mm -hmm. you know in the same way we have seasons and right now here in new england where i live you know, spring is here, the trees are finally bloomed, and, you know, the fish are coming back. So it, there's a whole cyclical nature of this. It's the same with universal patterns. Mm -hmm. It's a, That's really what I've been fascinated by since the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's not just dream analysis. Dream analysis is part of the analytic process. Mm -hmm. It's a huge part. Because what the dream does, it provides you with a, a, a position, provides you with a commentary about one's life that often you're not going to get to on your own. In other words, how we think about our lives, we have a certain ideas, certain biases, prejudice, whatever. And the dream will come in and say, but you, you're not looking over here. You gotta look at the, you gotta look in the woods over there. That's where it is. That's where things really grow in. Or it's not growing in the woods, it's growing in the city. Go back to New York, go back to Memphis and whatever. That's where the stuff is, where the gold is. Mm -hmm. Or you realize you know why you're sad, you know why you're not doing well in life? You're not doing well because of X or Y. Well, here's why you're prospering. So the dream has this incredible ability to provide objective information about your life that's not distorted or muted by our own biases. Mm -hmm. Now this is where we're getting into, I think, interesting discussion about self-analysis. Because <clears throat> if you look at the dream as a as uh, as coming from the from the deep unconscious, we see that there's a relation between how we perceive things. And what the dream deep unconscious is, how we perceive the different seasons in our life and what the seasons really are. For somebody, springtime, you know, springtime is new things coming back, life coming back, right? You begin to go swimming and uh, Italian ices and ice cream and the beach and bikinis and all that great stuff, you know? Fishing. Well, for somebody who went through a terrible trauma in springtime, they lost their parents. Springtime is lost. So you see that there's always this um, relationship between the universal archetypal native patterns and then our perception of these, which is based on our experience. That's the rub here with the work. This is where it gets very challenging and difficult. Mm -hmm. And I hope and we can talk about it as we go on, because it really gets to the heart of your subject of self-analysis or self-dream analysis. Mm -hmm. So my work, I've been working with individuals for 40 years, Doing analysis, some people I've worked with for probably the longest, maybe 15 years, 14, 15 years, one person, mm -hmm. twice a week for a long time. Wow. And I, I don't tend to work with people that are psychotic. In the early days, I did. You know. um, but these, you know, since then, I work with people that, that have a life, people that tend to really are in the world, but they're struggling with, you know, how do you really find whatever the, the true nature of your life has been? What, what's, what's your real destiny? What's this really about? Mm -hmm. That reminds me of 
Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to no, ask no, you. Go ahead. So that's what my work has been about. That and a lot of teaching and lecturing here and then internationally. So what it's for, for our listeners who are unaware, can you describe what an archetype is and how that fits into the larger context of dream analysis? An archetype has to do with the, a universal pattern. Archetypical. That's, that's an archetypical situation, you say. Mm-hmm. Say getting ready to um, picnic on the beach. But it's archetypical. We, humanity has had vacations at the beach and picnics at the beach at the beginning of time. Getting ready, it's archetypical when the animals get ready for winter. You know, you gather your, your provisions and get your nests ready, whatever. So archetypical means something that's been part of the, the human or living experience, even better, because it's not just human. It's part of the um, highly patterned aspect of life that's been with humanity and all species at the beginning of time. Reptilian patterns, behavioral patterns, spiritual patterns all of it. So archetypes are those primordial models of how to live and how we do our life. It's probably a good way to talk about it. And then we begin to know something about archetypes by the pattern. The archetypal patterns are describing something about the archetype. So how do you use these archetypal patterns within dream analysis? Like how do you go from, you know, this you know, there's a difference between perceiving something and interpreting what you perceive, right? We have a choice as to how we interpret whatever we're experiencing in our dreams, these archetypal patterns. How do you, how does that whole process, how do you get to that more objective place in dream okay. analysis? That, that's a core question. And let me, let me begin by telling a little story, okay? Okay. Which I think will lead into this. Back in the 70s, you know, I'm from New York, there was a major story about a uh, developmental treatment center for kids. It's called Willowbrook State School, Name maybe it's important for some people. And it was a place where there were deplorable conditions for kids. Horrible, horrible stuff. And Geraldo Rivera, a very famous reporter, went there and did this expose on it, wrote a book. And, and I, I did my internship there, part of my internship when I was in college. Anyway, a long story short, these kids would sit there I mean, kids, some of them are 40 years old, sit and rock all day. They would rock. I mean, they would play with body parts all day, sit against the wall, hit the head, you know, horrible, horrible stuff. Anyway, there was one little boy, this beautiful little kid, he's maybe 12 years old. He's one of the young ones. And he would sit there rocking all day, rock in a corner, looking against into the corner, right? Mm-hmm. You say, this kid's got nothing. His, his life is just gone right now. Yeah. Well... I was there during the summer months, and they had a recess for half an hour. Every time they ring that bell, they open the door. With, of course, a lot of uh, support and supervisors and all that. And the kids would run out, and they would all do different things, run, whatever. This kid would run to the garden every day. I never, never forget it. How many years ago now? 50 years, 40 years ago? He would run to the garden, and he would pick flowers, and he would make a crown out of the flowers and put it on his head and somehow he was a different kid at that moment for those 15 minutes a day he was like a normal kid and i said what happened you know what 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 happened that got him from in that room you know rocking for 12 to 15 to 18 hours a day looking into the wall to going out there and smiling and running and having this crown on his head. I said, I, I, I would never understand what this was, but I knew something happened. Right. 
something transformative happened when he entered that, I use a word now, into that field, into that garden. Not a field as in the field or the field out there or the baseball field or whatever, but he entered some archetypal field where somehow he accessed something that was in that field that changed him for that short amount of time. And I, I, as I look back over my life now, I realize something of that event really shaped me in a profound way to want to understand what happened. What are these fields in the world that could change us for better or for worse? Mm-hmm. So I'm winding into your question this way, okay? That we know that there are experiences in our life, some terrible traumas that shape your life. We know that, right? Right. Sometimes you never seem to get out of it, from the violence, from the early death experiences to physical abuse, sexual abuse, just scars that stay with us. Other times, the richness of a multicultural family, being loved in the family, you know it shapes you. Those incredible times, I'm Italian, right? Growing up around 30, 40 people around a dinner table, speaking Italian, other languages, it just, oh my God, it shapes your life in some wonderful ways. Mm-hmm. So you, you realize it's what shaping was not just that experience. It's coming into the objective now. Mm-hmm. It's that experience is embedded in the field unto itself. There are fields in the world. In physics, I've been doing a lot of work on the confluence of matter and spirit for 40 years. <clears throat> By looking at fields in the natural world, such as electromagnetic, gravitational fields, nucleic fields, and you realize the fields in the outer world affect us. I mean, we're sitting down right now because of gravity. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the spacemen are up there right now, up in the space station. They had to break the gravitational field. Yeah. Magnetic fields. Magnetic fields shape us in many ways. The magnetic fields generated by, by electrical circuits. It affects the brain in many ways. So you realize there's always a field whether material or now archetypal. Mm-hmm. In many ways, so much of, of life, I think, needs to be reframed by some of the great contributions throughout history, by what's happened, what people have discovered we need to be reframing for. That it's not just our development as kids that shape us. It's the ever-presence of these archetypal fields, of these a priori fields that have existed from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. There's always been the field of generosity of the one that gives in a wonderful way. Can I, oh, you look hungry, how about a meal? And it, there's no seduction in it, there's no secondary gain, there's no manipulation. Hey, I got a couple of uh, apples, you wanna share your own apple? There's always a feel of seduction. You look hungry, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then you know why people are doing it. They're doing it to kind of, you know, seduce you into a horrible feel. Mm-hmm. So much of life is an ongoing interaction with these fields. And we rarely know what they are. Mm-hmm. Right now, look at our country. Look at our country, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're, you're in the South, I'm in the North, right? doesn't matter where you are. Everybody's being affected by the fields, whether bigotry, whether racial divide, whether um, ethnic divide, you, you name it. It's all back on the table. And you know what? People want to blame everybody. It's the cops. It's this, uh, Afro-Americans. Whatever. Everybody is running scared and people are possessed. This is where archetypes come in. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I am not interested in making public comments about political issues. That's not what I want to do. In private, we could talk about it, whatever. It's too loaded. But what I can say, though, is that when you look at police today and what's going on, I mean, talk about police brutality and everything. Police, I think if I was to be invited as a consultant, I would say objectively, what's the question of the objective? Police are terrified. 
and they're reacting as terrified people. As terrified animals, what do you do? You show your teeth and you stop biting. If you're scared for your life, if I'm afraid you're coming to my house to destroy me, I'll get a gun and I'll get a bat to try to kill you first. That's what you do. It's a possession, and here's a key word for this. Possession means being taken over by something bigger than oneself. Whether the possession by... I'm sure when you do your yoga, there are moments when you, you, you're practicing, you're teaching or whatever, all of a sudden you're in that zone. Mm-hmm. You, you know when you're in that zone, look, you're really cooking. Mm-hmm. You're really cooking. And you know what? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. When you do music, when you do sports, when you lecture, whatever, you know, you do, you do any work for all of it, and all of a sudden, bada-ding, you take off. You're in that zone. That's part of an archetypal field. Mm-hmm. That you hit something bigger than you, much more powerful. And it happens both for the negative and the positive. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the dream work, and this is a, a major, major question you bring up about objective. Objective means that there are some, I'll use a word that I'll translate, that there are ontological currents in life. Ontology refers to the essence of something. There's the essence of childhood. There's certain things that go with childhood. Certain things that go when you're buying your first home, okay? Certain things that go with looking at retirement. Certain things that go with the first blush of love, the first blush of sexuality, the first blush of maybe making a home. Wow, imagine building a nest with this person, you know? And, and you begin to realize that there are these universal currents that we've inherited in much the same way the birds, you know, watching the birds are, you know, gathering all the little twigs to make their nest and... And the males generally go in and find the, all of the worms to prove they're a worthy one. Well, these are objectives in life. And the comment that Jung made, is, which is very smart, is that neurosis is being out of step with that objective. Neurosis is not knowing how to follow, not blindly following, not being a puppet to this, but saying, yeah, we're on the journey. We're, if you're, you're in a younger part of life right now, which is wonderful. My boy's 28 and his wife, you know, are building a, their life, nothing about family, and you begin to see it's part of the natural current. Not that you have to have family, it's not the point, but coupling, whatever way it takes, whatever gender, it doesn't matter. All that nonsense, you know, homosexual, hetero, what? If you find a couple, get on your knees and thank God you found somebody who loves you. You know what I mean? Thank yeah. God. And somebody you can love like that. But then once you enter that field, certain things befall you. From the romance, to the passion, to the hunger, to the fear, to the sexuality, to the future, all of that stuff. That's all part of the currents that we begin to follow. Mm-hmm. When you find someone out of step with that, you say, hmm, what's going on here? I-, I wonder why you're so out of step. Like I remember somebody, a young man I saw who was like 17, 18 years old, had no interest in driving a car. Like my son, I remember, he was 16. I lived in Vermont at the time. He was not, even I'm from Brooklyn. He was in Vermont for a long time. Mm-hmm. All the young boys, 15 years old, they get their permit. They were sleeping at the, at the motor vehicles the night before. <laughs> they couldn't wait. <laughs> right. The 17-year-olds just kind of waiting and having no interest whatsoever. You say, what happened? Not, it's not about wrong. It's not wrong. Mm-hmm. Many people, you say, I'm saying it because, you, you know, you play devil's advocate. It's saying, well, it's interesting. It's not following a natural pattern. I wonder what it is. And for this guy, it really was being very much mother-bound. That he was so attached to the mother, he was afraid to separate. Oh. He was afraid to make the journey out to the young guys. And, you know, 
15, 16 year old boys and girls, they begin to experiment with life as they should enter life. You know, just don't hurt anybody. You know, mm -hmm. do consensual, don't hurt anybody and be safe and all that great stuff. It wasn't there. And you see, I wonder why they're not following it. See, because it is objective. And it doesn't mean we're pigeonholing anybody. This is the way you have to do it. But when you see that 90% of the kids are sleeping in motor vehicles the night before, or they can't wait for the first, what do they call mash dance, mash pits, whatever they were a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. All the kids wanted to go, and my son was talking, I said, what is it? It's a different way of life, many different ways of life, okay? There are many different roads you take. But when one is so diametrically opposed to the general current of 17-year-old life, of all that goes with it, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you draw the parallel with the body. You have certain um, sugar levels in the body, enzyme levels, um, blood levels, you know, all the, different, all the different things, right? Heart rates. Now, there's always a range. Mm -hmm. There's a range. Between this range and this range, it usually indicates healthy heart. This range and this range usually mean that kind of couldn't look concerned. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing here, that there are, nat there are natural ranges and natural patterns of behavior. So when you ask, again, the million-dollar question you just asked about objective, it's saying there are some natural tendencies that are objective in life. Mm -hmm. Now, where we get into a lot of complications, especially when you get into dream work, I'll give some examples to ground this in a minute, is we make meaning of any of everything. Now, a terrible line, a little, little off color, but I'm, um, now I don't know if you remember the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, no? Mm -hmm. you know, before you, uh, Monica Lewinsky. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. she, she gave a lecture one time in, about, not a lecture, an interview, and she said, truth is what you make it. I think she was around politicians for too long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you saw my face. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, truth is what you make it. And you know what? Unfortunately, that's what's happened in psychology in many fields. Truth is what you make it to be. Young and the early young Ian's were not about that at all. They were about there are some, there are some pillars in life. There are some values. There are some innate moral values. Again, this is not fundamentalism. It's not following the commandments. It's not all that stuff. But there are some natural things that are in fact transgressions. There are some things that are following the currents of life that are beautiful. And when you look at a dream, you're really looking against, you look at the dream as a, a, a telling of what are the natural currents of life and where are you in relationship to those natural currents of life? Mm -hmm. Are you diametrically opposed? Are you blindly following them? Are you creatively following them? Are you ignoring them? Okay. Mm -hmm. So the objective is huge. And objective is a very tough word for a lot of people today because what happens is oh you're telling me what I should do mm -hmm. that, that's that's the complex that's hit that's another key word that I'll talk the complex when you say objective you speak archetypes people are going to say oh my god it's so rigid they, okay if you're going to say that not you when you say that then you say well isn't it rigid to say that in springtime the, the leaves begin to, to uh, bloom isn't it is then is it rigid to say that the spring begin the migration and the, and the, the fish begin the migration in the springtime, they come back, they begin to leave in late fall, up in New England anyway. Mm -hmm. Is that rigid? Then you tell me nature's rigid, you know, then you do what you want with it. 
But it, it, the, the great ones in history, the, the sages and the dreamers and the mystics and the analysts and the great poets, they were attuned to these natural patterns. I mean, a woman, more than most of us, women know more about natural patterns because it happens in your body more than men. Mm -hmm. you, you live with this, you know, when, as you begin to watch from men to little boys of puberty, but we don't have the menstrual cycle. We have a certain cycle, but you realize that you're aware so much so that no, however you want to think about it, as violence, as horrible, as wonderful, as moving into a womanhood, however you want to think about it, it's still a regularity. It happens. You could frame it any way you want to. And yes, that will affect a lot. But what you're doing is you're trying to make sense of something that is still an innate process, a regular process of, in, of nature. Mm -hmm. So am I trying to, to make architects conform to, to nature and body? No. They're expressed in a similar way. So in the same way, there is a cyclical quality to, to a woman's menses. There are cyclical processes to a, a man and woman's life entering the 20s and 30s, and 40s and 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work in being an analyst, and we have our own program here called Archetypal Pattern Analysis, is you begin to learn what are these natural patterns by looking at fairy tales, looking at religion, looking at poetry, looking at movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's such a rich thing. And what makes it really a challenge is how we want to go about always making our own meaning, like the Monica Lewinsky thing. Mm -hmm. Meaning is what you make it. Well, you have a personal meaning, how you, and then there's an objective meaning. There is a bigger meaning. Mm -hmm. The world wasn't created for us to simply paint onto it what we believe. Mm. That's, that's hubris. And one of the uh, prevailing motifs in fairy tales is hubris. We're better than the gods. I don't need them, they're gods. We're more beautiful. We're more talented. We, we spin the, the, weave, the weaving wheels. We do that better than the gods. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's always been this thing of, you know, either supplication to the deities or we're going to, we don't need them because we're better. Many, in many ways, the gods are symbolic of the different archetypes. So you don't need to go religion and Catholicism and Judaism and all Muslim. You don't need to go there. You look at that there are these different deities that stand for different properties of life. The goddess Hestia, for instance. Mm -hmm. Hestia is the goddess of home and hearth. So every time you go to your kitchen, if you have, who happens to enjoy cooking or cleaning, cleaning the kitchen or whatever, maybe cooking more, cleaning. <laughs> you, you really go into the domain of Hestia. I have a hundred-year-old wood cook stove, and I'm cooking right now. It's like the old-fashioned cowboy movies, you know, those kind of stoves with the open of the oven door and you cook on top and all that. Yeah. I go, I go to, oh, yeah, I go to that stove, and I, I had it for 20 years. I, I adore it. I go there, and, like, the kid goes into the field, puts the, the ring of flowers on his head. I go there, and you can have the hardest day, the most difficult day. Something shifts. Something shifts. Because, and it really is entering another archetypal field. That's not just what you make it. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Natives in the beginning of time talked about power places, power sites, certain places in the natural world that are, they rejuvenate. Mm -hmm. So archetypes are about these natural processes and then there are, there is the human uh, proclivities to usurp all that. And we, we then make our own meaning of, of the whole world and we get into trouble. Now, now personal meaning is beautiful. <coughs> it's great, right? Mm -hmm. 
Elie Wiesel. You know the name Elie Wiesel? Say Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was one of the last survivors of the Holocaust. He died about two years ago. He got the Nobel Prize for humanitarian efforts and whatever. He made one of the most, he's a brilliant man, absolutely brilliant. Elie Wiesel. He wrote Night, you may have read Night in high school or college, whatever. Okay. okay. He said with the development of the rational mind came the capacity to rationalize anything and everything. You, you realize, not you, but you, when you realize what, what he's saying with that, we can make anything whatever we want it to be. Mm-hmm. That beautiful gift somebody gives you, well, it's seduction, right? That seduction somebody is, is presenting to you is, oh, is that a wonderful gift? Because we distort things. It's part of the temperament of humanity to distort things along the, the lines of what's familiar. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, dream work, it's what gets you to a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. We'll give examples in a minute. Okay. So you really put your finger on a major issue, not only with dream work, but with life in general. I mean, just look at politics. I mean, I deal with government, not, not actually with governments, but I deal with people from around the world every day, from at least three, four countries every day, from the Russians to the Latin Americans to the Australians and the Italians. And you see how the different governmental, the um, national ideologies are often, they're blind. They're blind to the bigger issue. I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, or I'm a socialist, or I'm a, I'm a communist. I'm a, and what happens is you're slowly taken over by these things, and you only see, like a horse with the blinders on, you only see within the contours of that field, and everything gets interpreted that way. Mm-hmm. You live in a field of red, everything is red. You feel a field of blue, everything is blue. So all of the, the riches of your life, it gets conformed, gets contorted in, in this Procrustean bed where you either shrunk or expanded to fit these preconceived ideas. That's part of the sadness of this stuff. The richness that is possible gets contorted to fit the confines of what we're aware of, what our experiences are. Again, that beautiful gift somebody gives you. Say, you, say somebody had that terrible experience of some kind of sexual abuse or incest, which is horrible, horrible, horrible on so many levels. Can you accept that gift from somebody who realized they gave it because they love you? They don't want nothing else. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. No other motive. You know how much work it takes to get beyond? Well, why are you giving it to me? I, I know I'm not going to accept it. I know what they're really looking for. And it's not conscious. It's not conscious. I'll give you a great example of this whole thing. Let's say two people have the same dream. Mm-hmm. It happens. Say all the dreamers, I dream of a sailboat. It's a whole dream. Now, the way we always begin, and anybody's going to begin, well, what do you think about a sailboat? What do you think or what do you feel about a sailboat? Okay, so we got number one, number two. Mm-hmm. Two different people. So you ask the first one, what, do you, what about sailboats? And they smile. I spend two weeks, I'm, I'll make all this up. This is not me, I'm making it up. Right, yeah. And they tell you, I had two weeks in Greece with my, with my partner. Oh my God, the most incredible two weeks of my life. Drinking great Greek wines and swimming in the Mediterranean or whatever the waters were there. <laughs> sailing every fresh fish every day, all that goes with romantic time on a boat for two weeks. Oh my God. Oh, most beautiful time of my life. You want to say more? I could talk for hours about my sailboat experience in Greece. Mm-hmm. And they tell you more. Mm-hmm. 
And they may say, well, I wish I had more of that in my life right now. I wish that wasn't just a past, or maybe I need another vacation like that. But they go on with a beautiful memory. Mm-hmm. And they say it was one of the best times of my life, most romantic, most rewarding, most spiritual, all of that. Okay, number one. Number two. Mm-hmm. What about a sailboat? Don't ask. I can't, I can't, I can't stand the thought of sailboats. You know why? Again, I'm making it up. Right. The page, number two. We had a family vacation planned. All six of us. I couldn't go because I had a special event at school. I couldn't go. So my, my brothers and my sister, my parents are on the sailboat. We drowned. The boat went down. They hit a reef. They didn't see the reef. They didn't read the maps, you know, the, the nautical maps. Three of them were caught in the cabin. They went down. They couldn't open the cabin door. The boat went down there. And my father was trying to, the, you know, steal the boat. They all drowned and died in the accident. Mm-hmm. They had a sailboat. I hate sailboats. I can't stand the thought of it. I, my body shakes when I think of it, and I'm just I'm brought to my knees with the horror of what happened. So it's nothing but memory when I think. It's nothing but the, the memory of, of trauma, of, of loss. My, my, my brother and my sister were young. They, they were young. So I don't know why a dream will come to me. A dream must have come to me to remind me of the tragedy for some reason. Maybe I'm not dealing with it enough. I don't know. Maybe it's telling me never to go on a boat. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, my I don't ever go on boats because of that. I don't go even go near the water. I hate, I hate the water. I'm terrified of the water. Two different dreams. Two, same dream, two different people. Most dream therapists would tell you that, number one, Greek, well, the Greek and tragedy. The Greek and the tragedy story. Number one, number two. They would say the dream came for the person with the Greek memory to remind them of, of a time of Eros. Sort of a Dionysian wonderful time of the wine and the loving and the passion and the, the freedom and swimming and all that great stuff and the Aegeans, all of the wonderful stuff that goes because maybe they need more of it in their life right now. Maybe they're the two, you're doing your doctoral studies right now or you're making a living and paying your taxes and buying a home and you know, you got your nose to the grindstone. Maybe you need some more of that. Come on, you take a, take a, take a little time away, you're working hard. So the dream came to, to remind you of that, of that domain of life, of the Greek domain of life, okay? Mm-hmm. The other one, number two. Maybe the dream came to say, there's a majority of dream, dream therapists, okay? Mm-hmm. The dream came to remind you of either the tragedy of life, and maybe you haven't dealt with it enough. Maybe you still really are in denial of, of, of your real feelings of what happened. Part A or Part B, it's maybe the same because of the tragedy. You're you're not allowing yourself to go and enjoy the, the sailboats of yours. So the counterphobic right now, or more phobic reaction. Mm-hmm. And then so you would work with both clients talking about the Greek and Eros, the need for that back in life, or the other one, the tragedy and whatever. And then you spend a couple months, whatever you need, as much time as you need to, to work it over. And then you, you get tears, you get smiles, you get joy, you get rapture, you get horror, all of it, and say, I worked that dream. I think I understand the dream. Jung and, and I and others would say, you haven't touched the dream yet. You totally didn't touch the dream. Look at all the emotion. Look at the rapture. Look at the smile on their face. My God, they're back in Greece, man. They're having a wonderful time back in the Grecian memories. But they're back in the horror of, of the sailboat going down. Right. Now, this gets to the heart of your question. What's objective? What's personal? 
we we have our personal reactions to everything in life. Everything. Our reactions do not mean what's objective. They become our meaning. You may think of New York Italians in a certain way. I may think of Memphis people in a certain way. That may be my reaction. We have nothing to do with the reality. You know, my family's from Sicily and Southern Italy, all Southern Italy. They are, they're all mafia, right? There. We know what the Italians are. We know the Sicilians. Well, it becomes a stereotype. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when we get those horse blinders back on, all we see is our own experience, our own bias. Mm -hmm. So all I see, number one, all I see is a beautiful Grecian experience. Number two, all they see is a tragedy. And they say the dream came to, to bring that back up to me. And the therapist would say, well, based on the strength of the emotion of the, of the love and the whatever, the rapture, the tragedy and the, the harm of despair, that's what the dream meant. Mm -hmm. Now, you want the big issue? A sailboat's created for the purpose. The original purpose and the essence of a sailboat isn't for the purpose of giving a Grecian, Roman, passionate, rapture experience. Is that the purpose of a sailboat? Number two, is a sailboat created for the purpose of drowning people? Can either of those happen? Do they happen? Yes. I lived here in, I'm out by a town called Mystic, Connecticut, where they made Mystic Pizza in the movie. Uh, but it's, it's beautiful waters here, but also, and some of the great fishing in the country because there's a big reef system here. Big reefs are out. And every year, almost every year, a few people die on the reefs because you can't see them on high tide. Oh. And many boats, so you, you know, it's where the best fishing is too. You want to fish on the reefs because they love the fishing on the rocks and all that, right? That's where the fish live. But if you hit that wrong time of day and you don't know what you're doing, you go speeding over it, you hit the rocks and you're dead. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, this dream, this dream would be a very powerful telling of the issue of how we contort everything or how we see things that occur through our own lens. If for me the boat means the tragedy, for me the boat means rapture. That's what it's about. Mm -hmm. Now, we were young, and C.G. Jung, who was a Swiss psychiatrist, really worked in this whole realm of archetypes and objectives, like natural tendencies, okay? He would say, okay, look, there, there's a world independent of your experience, my dear. I'm sorry to tell you this. Well, Michael, you know what? You're not the center of the universe. <laughs> and then you got to ask, okay, what are sailboats about? After the, you know, after the patient has their experiences, and they, if it takes a year, whatever it takes, it doesn't matter. They say, I guess we worked in a dream, doc, and we haven't touched the dream. Well, what do you mean? Look at all the emotion. We've touched your reaction to the dream. Right. You see what I'm getting? Yeah. If, if you like a bullseye, in the, the, the bullseye in the circle, that's the objective. Right. Samples. Your reaction to it, all the lines, squiggly lines around that nucleus, you know? Mm-hmm. That represents your reaction, or another the word here is the complex to the dream. When we conflate the complex as being the same as a nucleus, that's where we get into trouble. Right. And that's unfortunately where, where dream work in the past 20 years has gone to. So how do you get to the objective? This, this last part of the story is one of the, the first Jungians to bring Jungian psychology to America. Her name is June Singer, Dr. June Singer. Out of Chicago, she's a psychologist who studied in Zurich for many years, which was the only young institute 
a long time. And she was preparing for final exams to be an analyst. And she's, she, I think she took like a year to study everything, mythology, religion, fairy tales, um, psychopharmacology, you name it. She was really studying it, hell up. Mm-hmm. After already six years of training. And she assumes ready for the exam. So the day came after all the study for exam, Dr. Singh were ready for the exam. She said, good, I'm, I've been studying. Okay. They have only one question for you. I said, okay, what's the question? She said, she said, you want to answer about mythology? No. Want to answer about alchemy? Fairy tales? No. Um, psychopharmacology? Psychiatry? No. Well, what are you going to ask me? <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for that. No. You know the term individuation? Yes. Individuation? Okay. They said, how would you explain individuation to an uneducated person that you meet in Switzerland, like a farmer? Uneducated formula. Say somebody with a fifth grade education? Mm-hmm. How would you explain to them individuation? She said, you sure want to talk about fairy tales? <laughs> or music or theater? No. And she went into a, your work of meditation. She went into a meditative state. And she went inside. Mm-hmm. What image came up for her? A sailboat. And she said, I would explain individuation by the image of the sailboat. And she said, I would... Talk to them about sailboats and say, number one, the obvious is a sailboat is powered by what? By the wind. Okay? And to capture the wind, to work with the wind, not capture, but you have to get this, I think it's called tack, tack, T-A-C-K, whatever, the tack. When you get the, you ever see when you get the sail and you pull the new rope and then the, the sails billow out like that? Yeah. We have a lot of them here. We're one of the sailing captains of the country. I've got a fishing boat. I don't, I don't have a sail. So anyway, they, they get the uh, the sails and they want to go that way. And the sail, all the air is filling in, the wind is filling, in, and they go that way because the wind is blowing them. And then they get the tiller in the back, and they're going, and then the wind stops. Mm. Well, what do we do now? And then they realize the wind starts blowing. It was blowing this way. Now it's this way. And then they tack the wind this way, and and they catch it. And she said, individuation is much like sailing. Because you have to learn how to work with the spirit, with the wind. Mm. You have to learn how to navigate by virtue of the power and the force of the wind. And the wind, since the beginning of time, has always been a symbol of spirit. Mm-hmm. Sperare, to breathe, wind, yeah. yeah. From inspiration, even in Italian, the word inspirare. Inspirare is, is inspiration, to breathe in, to inhale. Mm-hmm. So there's so much about wind and air as being related to the deep spiritual aspect of life. Mm-hmm. And you say, she was, you said, so this, the dream of the image of the sailboat is speaking to the spiritual dimension of life. But one learns not the power with the eye, with me, I turn the key on my head, my boat, and the outboard goes on. Mm-hmm. This is very different. Where you're, you're working so closely with the natural elements and learning how to work with them. You know, mm-hmm. And then you change direction. And she said, anybody who would have this dream is embarked on a spiritual process. And most likely the dream will come for somebody who's in the second half of life, where it's not just about turning the key and the motor or uh, powering your way through. You know, sometimes you power your way through all night with your studying and writing, or you have whatever. This is more of a working with the energy. Sometimes, you know, when the wind ain't blowing, you're not going nowhere. Mm-hmm. So drop a fishing line, take a nap, open a bottle of wine, and enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. Until the wind comes, and there are times in our life when the wind's not blowing, and you, you just don't feel inspired. 
Mm-hmm. There are other times when that wind's going and look to catch it. You know? Yeah. So I think it, it's a lovely story to look at the difference between the the limitation of a personal meaning, personal meaning. So for the, again, for the Greek and then the terrible tragedy, that is their lens of, of life and dealing with sailing in spirit. It's through these contorted lenses, through these limited lenses, and they're not catching the bigger meaning. Mm-hmm. So one would say, well, what if they don't know about sailboats? Well, something in you does. Mm-hmm. Something had the dream. We don't know what half our, bio, half our organs are doing in the course of a day. You know what your liver's doing and your kidneys right now, your gallbladder or your whatever, the whole reticular system. You know what it's doing? We don't know what it's doing. Thank God it works and your brain's working, your heart's working, you know, and all that stuff. It's the same with the unconscious. There is an objective unconscious that, that has information about a much broader way of living life, a much more, a much richer way of life. Because mm-hmm. it's not confined by our ex- personal experience. Mm-hmm. I, I watch the birds out my window here, you know. Who taught them how to build a nest? Who taught them? Nobody taught them. It's part of nature. Right. You know. Who taught the, the things about the migratory pattern? It's the same in the human life. You know, that there are these native natural patterns, which are called, is when you're opening questions, archetypes, mm-hmm. the native patterns. And we, we do get into a lot of trouble when we try to contort them and we change them, we alter them to fit our own belief systems. That's where it works. So when you talk about dream self-analysis, it's a real sticky wicket, as they say, you know, mm-hmm. because what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, to me, my me, that's, it's over right there. Right. Because I, it's wonderful for you to sailboat means Greek or tragedy. It's, it's wonderful for you if, if, the, if the apple tree reminds you of that first kiss under the apple tree with that boyfriend or girlfriend, okay, whatever. However, there's something bigger than apple trees and bigger than your experience of the apple tree. There's a bigger world. And what we do many times, while I think it's a wonderful goal, I think when you talk about self-analysis with dreams, I think what you, if I can be so presumptuous, say maybe what you're helping people to do is to be aware of what these, these issues are inside yourself, mm-hmm. to be aware and receptive to the archetypal processes. However, if the 40 years I tell you, though, don't work too well because we, we take them through our own lens. We put up blind design, and when we start with, well, to me it means, to me it means this, to me it means that. Okay, that's great. But See, is the world, is the image really going to be limited by what you make it to be? That's interesting. So what I think of in response to that, it, it kind of goes back to this idea of reaction versus response. And reaction yeah. is where we respond from our ego, right? And I see response as being like you were talking about going into that meditative state, getting in in touch with those patterns of how we live life, that flow, that ebb and flow, that energy. And that's where that objective, that inner wisdom, that intuition, that higher power, whatever you want to call it. And and what I've noticed is that when, if you allow yourself to enter that space and really get in touch with your own archetypal patterns, that if you allow this higher... What I'm trying to say is if you allow this higher power, whatever you want to call it, to guide you, it allows for your ego to drop and you're better able to perceive and interpret reality for what it truly is. So you are better able to be more 
objective in your self-analysis process because the goal is to not confirm our reactions, our ego, right? It's about truly trying to understand oneself to remember or however people want to say it, remember who you truly are, your essence, you know, without all of the labels and meanings that we hold in reality. If we can drop all of that, all of the ego interpretations, what's really going on here? Allowing that higher wisdom to guide us, not the ego. I think that is... For me, it's been effective for self-analysis, but I hear what you're saying. It is, it's, it is not, <laughs> it is a challenging process, but it's very, very humbling, I will say. If you can get, if one can get to where you're going, then, you, then it is you're doing the work. But I'm telling you, it's more, it's much, very difficult to get out of our own way. Yeah. Because look, one piece, it's human denial. Mm-hmm. Human denial closes us down. Yes. The denial of the bigger reality. And also, it's, we're not educated to that. So we, we, you know, from the beginning of time, we've, we've deified our own ideologies. We've deified your, whatever your religion is. That's the religion. Whatever our political stance is, that's it. And, and we, what you're talking about is a, is a genuine religious and spiritual experience. Genuine mm-hmm. spirituality is what you're describing. Yes. Yes. It's beautiful. But I'm, and, and I'm saying to you, it's... To actually have that in life is much more complicated because what, what just watch what happens. Do an experiment. Ask people about dreams about an image, and what you're going to get is to me what it means. To me what it means. To me what it means. Mm-hmm. And and then you see, are they able to get beyond that? If you can help people get beyond it, that's wonderful. But I'm telling you, the the natural inclination for for humanity is to stay within the confines right. of of our own belief system. And see, that's interesting. It's like the only way I know how to transcend that or navigate that is for me always, no matter the heart of everything of, you know, self-analysis is always meditation. And that's the, that's the way that I have found like that from going from that place, I feel more grounded and willing to look at the shadows within myself and not deny them and really learn how to love and embrace them as my own and either integrate them or heal them. But it's a, it's a process. How would you, what do you recommend for people who are attempting this process to, to really help them get into this space where they really are helping themselves, not hindering themselves? Around dream in particular, you mean? Yeah. Number one is to realize that there's a world bigger than us. That's number one. I mean, we all, we all, everyone, who would not agree with that, okay? Right. But when push comes to shove, when you get to a dream image, if, if you can help somebody understand that to only look at it through what you believe it is, it's not enough. Yeah. Okay, if you get a dream, say, of an apple tree, and it's just loaded with apples, they're all ready to be picked. It's a dream of saying something that's been growing has reached the point of fruition, maturity. It's a time to, to pick, a time to do something, hopefully, with that. So what are you going to do with it? So if, if the dreamer can realize that, it would be so powerful to say right now in the life of the dreamer, it's time to harvest some of what they've been developing over the years. Maybe it's time for you to maybe expand your, your radio show, or maybe for you to write it up as a book for you with that dream, for instance. 
or, or maybe a time to maybe expand it or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, or so somebody would have that dream, you, you want to be looking at what are they doing with what's been growing? Are they using it well enough? Because now comes the time to harvest. Mm -hmm. Take the opposite. If you have that apple tree in the dead of winter, you know, with nothing growing, no leaves or nothing, they all, everything is, is incubating right now, good. Going inside to keep all the nourishments inside, getting ready for the next growth cycle. Mm -hmm. And if they tell you, oh, this this makes me think of a time in my life right now where I want to expand, I want to grow, start all new things. I don't think so. Maybe not. You see, if, if you follow the natural cycles of life, there are cycles of growth, cycles of like right now, springtime, here people just begin to put things in the ground and fertilizing the ground and all the compost and all that great stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's the beginning of growth. It's not harvest. Come September, you start harvesting. I mean, the bigger things, you know, zucchini and tomatoes, you start harvesting, whatever. Mm -hmm. So if you realize that there is a natural order, are your reactions to the dream in line with the natural order or not? Are you aware of harvesting when, when the apples are there? Mm -hmm. Are you aware of maybe not harvesting because there's not time, there's not nothing growing in the outer world yet during the dead of winter apple tree? So that's my would be my recommendation because really that recommendation you're going to cut to the chase. It's really what you just said beautifully. It's it's a spiritual attitude saying there's a reality bigger than the one I'm aware of. That's the real work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, even modern psychology, I would say the majority of modern dream work psychologies and all this, it's all about what does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. And you know what? What do you learn with that? I've had colleagues that spent 10 years training to be an analyst and they say in the work is, what do you think about that? I said, why would you spend all these years training? I don't get it. Why would you study mythology, religion, fairy tales, ancient cultures, whatever, if you're going to just reduce everything to what you think? An apple tree is different from a pear tree, is different from a maple tree, different from a weeping willow. You got different trees down south that we have, right? Mm -hmm. What do you got down there? What are some of your unique, unique trees in the south? We do have weeping willows periodically, I've seen. My favorite tree, actually, weeping willow. Ah, that's my favorite, too. That's, that's oh, That was my go-to. <laughs> but, yeah, we have a ton of um, different trees. Unfortunately, I don't know all of them by name. Dogwood. Dogwood, yeah. From New York, you say dog. Dogwood. Oh, <laughs> By dogwood, and then you, even the drinks, you got the mint julep, you got things, different drinks, different foods down there. I love mint julep, that's, yep, they're delicious. <laughs> so, you know, you get the point that there are these net, there are regional differences and all mm -hmm. that, and that would be, that's part of what's natural for that environment. So, for you, from the south, there's going to be a certain way of being in the world that's going to be different from a northerner. However, what's going to be there for everybody is there's a time when you harvest, a time when you don't harvest. Yeah. A time when the fish are coming, a time when the fish are not here. Yeah. You know, that's it brings up a really tangential but kind of related point that, you know, we, like you were saying, we all have our different patterns and rhythms, our different contexts, right? And sometimes you know, we, we make, we problem solve, we make decisions based on our context, right? Based on the parameters of a situation. And it's interesting that, you know, we can have different contexts and we can be led to different conclusions, different outcomes of how to problem solve that process. 
And so for me, like going back to what you were saying, you know, we, we can, we have these different contexts, we have these different outcomes, but it's like, are we truly problem solving? Are we truly learning? And that's where for me, it's like, okay, that seems more reactionary. Can we take a step back and enter that place of that archetypal patterning and find that flow and the, the true objective response to the problems that we're seeing in the world rather than it being just a confirmation of our own biases, egos, our, our context, our external world. And that, again, you, you, I, I love the way you frame it because from the thing about personal objective meaning to this, I mean, you see it all weaves around the issue. Right. Same issue. And look, at our, look, at our, look at our country. I mean, I don't want to say things about other countries. Like I said, I do a lot of work in Russia now. Um, but in America, most people are wedded. They're, they're wedded to the public and the Democrat. Mm-hmm. My family, they'll, they'll come to blows. Yeah. They'll come to blows around the presidency if they believe so. You know, so who believes one, who believes the other piece? You know, who says the, the, the worst presidency is some of the best? My family, you know, they're the so, I mean, for them, this is the best government we've ever had in the history of the United States. There's no questions. There's no debate. There's no question. I'm, I'm not saying the worst. I'm not going there. I'm just saying right. the, the readiness and, and, and could become, that conversation could become violent within half an hour. You yeah. don't talk about it. Because the, but does anybody ever ask the big question? Two parts of question. Number one, what is the symbol? What are you wedded to? Well, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. What does that mean? Number two, I mean, each is a different archetype. Mm-hmm. A different archetype. And when we have all these incredibly strong feelings about, about the presidents, why? Yeah. I'll give you an answer. Okay. The president is a symbol of the king. And the king represents what's called the executive function in the personality. Mm-hmm. I tell you something very, very interesting, my dream, right? Mm-hmm. Go back to 2016, the last election, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. A year, so two, let's go now, 2015, a year before the actual elections. We had Trump and we had Hillary running, right? Right. And everybody said Hillary had to win. She was going to win. Not, not good or bad, but say she was just going to win. That was all the predictions. Right. Mm-hmm. 80% of my patients were dreaming about the, about the elections. You know what they dreamt? What? Who won? Interesting. Trump won. And 80% of the dreams of my patients, Trump won. And then, I think only one book in the world won that bet that Trump would win. <laughs> right. <laughs> and again, please, for your audience, I am not making any political comment. I'm making a bigger comment, which is, Whatever Trump represents, mm-hmm. he was already in, uh, instilled in the, in the American psyche. He was prefigured. Mm-hmm. So it's not even what Trump is, is he was already a part of the American psyche. The Trump archetypal feel that he's in, what he's part of. So it's wild how this stuff works. It's really interesting. It's, it's incredible. I mean, this is a big, this is a lot of stuff we study in our training program here. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what was it? So the reason people are ready to go to blows about presidents and all that stuff is because it symbolizes their, their deepest held value, their yeah. spiritual values. For good or bad, this is what I believe, this is what my God is. This is what they project as the, the quintessential healthy value in the world. If you question that, then you question what I believe in. Yeah. You can't, you can't have that discussion. You can't talk about God and religion. God, religion, and politics for most, many people. And see, that's what's sad for me is that when you, when we, not you, general you, 
shut down and you are unwilling to be open to another person's understanding and hear them where they're at, you, you automatically shut yourself down to learning. You shut yourself down to intimacy, to connection, to growth, to expansion of our, not only our social relationships, but also our consciousness, our, our evolution as a species. And if people really want to begin to work together problem solve and overcome and work through these challenges, we have to be willing to take off our armor, put down the swords, I feel, and come together and really do this work either by themselves or with the help of another so we can come together and unite. Look, what you're saying is pure spirituality and something very beautiful and desperately needed. And I'll tell you, I can add my note from 40 years of clinical work. Okay. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to get beyond our personal perspective. Mm-hmm. It's necessary. If, if we're going to survive, we got to get beyond it. I agree. This can't go on anymore. I mean, look, in ancient times, you know, people would, would throw rocks at each other, bow and arrows, and then spears, and look where we are today. Right. 5,000 miles away, you press a button, and a stealth bomber drops a bomb in you, in the window, that one house, 50 houses on the block, that one window, the bathroom window, it drops a bomb. Yeah. And that's where we are today. And then it's we, we we've only escalated the tendency of standing in saluted attention to our own personal belief system. Right. It's, it's tragic. It's tragic because there is more to life than our personal belief system. You know what you're saying is a, is a beautiful song, and I'm saying you but you need to know not you but one needs to be really aware that there's another song always playing which is my belief my my thing. Yeah. And that will eclipse that be- the beautiful song almost every time. Look, I'll leave with this piece. Mm-hmm. I remember when my son, my son, like I said, is now 28 years old. When he was just born, a friend gave me this beautiful album they put together. Of little children's songs. And one was Little Boxes, Little Boxes. Pete Seeger, the uh, country singer. Uh-huh. Singer. And it was all about how you put a beautiful kid in the school. The mind is open, the universe is open, filled with potential. Little boxes, little boxes, teach you how to live in little, little boxes. Teach you one and two, and two and one, and one is three, and three, two and two is four. And they say so so quickly we take the beautiful piece that can grasp infinity and put it in little boxes. Yeah. That's what happens with this stuff. Yeah. So look, you know, any way we can get closer to what you're saying, this is what my work is about, trying to do what you're saying. Right. And a lot of the work then is when it comes to dream, it's really looking at the difference between what I think and what I feel, what I want, what I believe, what I saw. So, okay, that's important. We'll talk about that for as long as we need to. There's still apples on the tree. There ain't no apples on the tree right now. Sailboats are there, even though I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about the horrible tragedy. I'm so happy to hear about Greek experience. You right. know? There's still a sailboat that's existed pretty, pretty much at the beginning of time. Yeah. And all that it's meant for humanity. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Wish you all the best with this. And I hope that dream comes to fruition. And find ways to make it happen. It's a great one. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>